Hey everyone, and welcome to this inaugural episode of Skipper. On this week's episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Randy Street. Street is the managing partner of GH Smart, a leadership advisory firm whose mission is to help great leaders amplify their positive impact on the world. He regularly helps executive leaders as they select and develop A players for their teams to build companies that win. Street has served as a leadership advisor to boards, CEOs, and executive teams for over 20 years. He's also a popular keynote and public speaker. Street co-authored the book, Who? The A Method for Hiring, which is a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Business Week, USA Today, and Publishers Weekly bestseller. He also co-authored Power Score, Your Formula for Leadership Success, released on June 2015. Upon release, Who became the number one ranked bestseller on Amazon out of 24 million book titles and hit every major bestseller list in the United States. Soundview Executive Book Summaries gave Who the Best 30 Business Book Award, Shanghai Daily named it a top five best book in China, Canada's Globe and Mail named Who the number one best business and management book of 2009, and the Wall Street Journal named it a top seven best advice book for leaders in 2011. Street earned his master's in business administration from Harvard Business School and a BS in mechanical engineering from Rice University. Hey, Randy, super excited to have you. How are you? Alex, great to be here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. (laughs) All right, let's get to it. So first, just curious to know, when was it that you decided and told yourself that you want to be in the world of business was there a particular moment that you contributed to or was it something that you always knew you were interested in and and wanted to do yeah actually a little bit of both i i I studied mechanical engineering at rice university in houston uh, and i always had this vague notion that i would be a practicing engineer for a while and then maybe move into management and get more onto the business side But during my senior year, I interviewed for all kinds of engineering jobs. This was in 1991-92, and there was a recession going on, and I found it really hard to find great jobs, and I found the jobs that were available not all that interesting, actually. They didn't really suit what I was looking for, and uh, I was kind of depressed. I was walking across campus one day, and a professor pulled me aside and, and asked, you know, what was going on, and I told him what I just told you. And he said, have you ever considered business? Uh, and he told me about the, the near limitless, interesting problems that you get to solve in business. And I found that really attractive. He actually pointed me to consulting firms and investment banks, neither of which I had ever heard of. So this was my spring of my senior year. I had never heard of these as options. Um, but I quickly did my homework. And fortunately for me, Bain and Company had just opened an office in Dallas and had not come through interviewing yet. They were very late on the schedule that year, which was just a lucky stroke for me because I absolutely fell in love with this idea of strategy consulting as a way to learn business, all facets of business, solving super interesting problems with with interesting people. So they went from a vague notion to like one of those moments in time where a professor just grabs you and kind of shook me. And I was like, you know what? I just need to do that. And that's what I've done ever since. Yeah, that's really cool. And you know, I think it's it's also probably encouraging for young people to hear because 
you know, that was your that was your senior year. <laughs> Spring of my senior year. <laughs> right, right. You know, all these people are are freaking out at freshman year. So it's cool that you sort of figured that out uh, later on. And I mean, clearly it worked out. So that's cool. Um, and were there specific qualities about business that sort of drew you in initially? Yeah, I think it was it was solving problems. So as an engineer, you solve problems. They tend to be more engineering problems, math problems, physics problems. But I was a mechanical engineer. Business is solving business problems. And so you get to be analytical and you get to think through thorny issues. But you're doing it with a typically with a, a team that's more cross-functional. And, and quite honestly, I kind of liked, and I've really come to like over time, the profit motive, not because I'm like some hardcore capitalist, but because it's, it's a focusing mechanism, right? When you have to make it work, you, it, it focuses you very quickly on what works and what doesn't. Um, and, and I find that very attractive because I don't, I, I don't have a lot of patience for uh, bureaucracy and stuff that doesn't work. I, I, I like things that work and business is just as a, you know, one of the spheres in which you could work is a place where, you know, where the competitive dynamic kind of allows the best to rise to the top and the, the best ideas make it, you know, in the end and the, the worst ones fall to the wayside. That, that's cool to me. There's like a process that happens in the greater market. Mm-hmm. It's fun to play in that sphere. Yeah. So I know the company you work at, GH Smart, is all about helping leaders have a more positive impact on the world, uh, specifically through hiring. And so how did that mission align with your own aspirations when you first joined the company? And what, what intrigued you about GH Smart? Yeah. So this, um, if you'll indulge me for a second, I, I, I think my career journey led up to this. I wouldn't have ever said my spring semester, senior year, that this is what I would be doing. But to answer your question, I, I really loved my time at Bain. And I loved when we would crack, you know, crack the case, as they say, and a business would take off as a result. But I also found it strange that sometimes we do all this work and nothing would happen. You know, and it was the same work, same process. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And that just was really perplexing to me. And then I had a case, and this is in the early 90s, uh, and this is public knowledge, I can share this. It was with Continental Airlines. It's now part of United Continental, but at the time it was just Continental. And they were heading into Chapter 11 for the third time. No U.S. airline had ever gone bankrupt three times in a row and survived. And they hired Bain to save them. And so we went in and did a bunch of work and helped cut costs. And we did, in fact, save them from Chapter 11. But morale was terrible, as you might imagine. The business was not growing. It was a mess. And we did all this work. And we just couldn't quite get it to turn the corner. And then the board brought in a new CEO, a guy named Gordon Bethune. And in 18 months, it was the best performing airline in the industry, in the U.S. anyway, and one of the best in the world. It was amazing. It went from the absolute worst performing airline to the best performing airline in 18 months. And I had this moment of sitting back going, what just happened? (laughs) Right? I mean, we're doing all this work and I know we didn't do anything differently. and, And yet, you know, you bring in a new CEO who shuffled the team and suddenly it's the best performing airline in the industry. So that planted the seed that, you know what, maybe it's about leadership. There's something about leadership. I had a second experience where I, after Bain, I went to a company called easygov.com. This was in the dot-com era. And we were a, a startup putting software online for governments who were not on the internet at this point, right? These are early, early days. And same, I was in charge of marketing and sales, sales and marketing. 
And I found I had salespeople who could sell and salespeople who weren't so good at selling. And no matter what I did, at the end of the day, the ones who could sell could still sell. And the ones who couldn't still couldn't. And I realized I just need more who can <laughs> and, and fewer who can't. And then I had a final experience where I was on the, the MARTA, the public transportation here in Atlanta, heading into work at EasyGov. And I was watching all these people get on and off the train and they just looked depressed. And I just started imagining, look at all these people going to work and they all look downcast and depressed. What would the world be like if, there, if, if more people were in the right job that suited their skills and their strengths and everything? You know, how much more productive the world would be if we had great leaders and great teams across the board. And so that was the epiphany moment for me when I realized I need to be in that business. That's, that's what I need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mission of GH Smart, as you said, we're here to help amplify the positive impact that leaders have on the world uh, because our fundamental belief is that everything rises and falls on the strength of leadership. And so if we can help organizations get leadership right, then great things happen. And that's what we're up to. Yeah, right, right. I've taken the, uh, I've, I've taken Marta once or twice and I can say that I've, I've probably seen a few faces like the ones, like the ones you're describing. Yeah, um, I think uh, Gallup is a, you know, they do surveys and everything. You may have heard of the Gallup organization and I may get the statistic not quite right, but something like 70% of people are not engaged with their work. So think about the loss of human potential there on a great, on a macro scale and then just micro scale. Think of all the people who don't really enjoy what they're doing. And, and they have to, you, know, you have to make a living, but that's a depressing thought. All of that, all of those people who are kind of grinding it out day in and day out, they're not really passionate about the work and they're not giving their best because it's not really what they want to be doing in the first place. It's just a loss, you know, for humanity, really. So my dream is everybody in a role that suits them and suit, you know, that, that fires them up from a passion perspective and that they're, you know, good at or can get good at over time because everybody wins in that, in that case. Yeah. Uh, so Randy, having a job as essentially as a consultant for successful leaders, I'm sure you've been able to work with some awesome leaders across the board. And of course, I know there's a confidentiality piece here, uh, but wondering if you can share just some of the coolest people or organizations you've had the privilege of working with. And of course that can be as general or, or as specific as need be. Yeah, and I appreciate the caveat because we, unfortunately, as a consulting firm working with boards and CEOs of companies, we have to be careful from a confidentiality perspective. So we do have the privilege of working with the boards and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, uh, private equity-backed companies, startups. We also work with state governors, university presidents, charter school principals, hospital administration leaders, and, and more, foundation leaders. So it's kind of a, a broad range of people who are doing really interesting and cool stuff. You, are, you asked me though, you know, like who's a cool person I worked with. I actually I was thinking of somebody who you've probably never heard of. Most people won't. So this is not a front page of the Wall Street Journal type of person. But one of the coolest people I've had the privilege of working with is a woman named Carol Campbell, who was the chief human resource officer at First Solar which was at the time going through explosive growth in the early 2000s. Um, they manufacture solar panels and contribute to the electrical grid. And what I love about Carol's story is that she, you know, she doesn't have the sort of traditional you know, academic pedigree or business background. 
She's an incredibly humble person who started at the ground level in her, her company pr prior to First Solar. And she grew to become one of the nation's you know, top CHROs of one of the fastest growing companies at the time. And it was because she was all about learning and growing and improving and just being the best that she could be. And I just found that to be exhilarating to work with her because she, you know, she exemplified the best of leadership, right? This, with this attitude of wanting to get better and being super humble about it. And as a result, she was one of the best, in my opinion. I, I love working for her. She's retired now, but it was honestly one of the most enjoyable stretches of, of work I've ever done in my entire career is because of her awesome leadership. Um, so not famous, but uh, the kind of person I think most of your listeners would want to work for uh, or become in their careers. Yeah, and so as we've, as we've already stated, your job is to help the leaders of the world at their job. And I'm curious to know, were there ever moments when those leaders taught you something about yourself? And I mean, I, I don't know, little pieces of wisdom or times where in the process of helping them, they actually helped you? Yeah. So I, let's see, a couple of things come to mind on this. Um, one of the ones that, uh, that sticks out was a, a former, I think he's probably retired, retired, retired. Yeah, at the time he was a retired Air Force general working for EDS. And this was back when I was at EasyGov. And we were trying to strike a deal to work with EDS. And he asked us, what do you guys do when you make a mistake? And we gave him some trite answer, like, oh, we won't make any mistakes. We're awesome. <laughs> We've got a great process, blah, blah, blah. And he said, you know, you will make mistakes. That's not the question. The question is, what are you going to do when you make them? Will you own them? Are you going to learn from them? Are you going to make better decisions in the future as a result? Or are you going to cast blame or bury them or fail to learn? You know, he's like, I, I don't, I'm not interested in you guys being perfectionists. That's impossible. What I want to know is, are you going to learn and grow? Are you going to own it and, and fess up to it and get better as a result? That's who I want to work with. And that's always stuck with me. There's, there's something very powerful about leaders who own their mistakes. And I think one of the biggest failings in leadership today is most leaders fail to learn from their failures and they don't own up to them. And it just completely wipes out credibility and it shuts down the possibility that, that they can get better. So that's one. Um, another one, this actually is from Peter Drucker, the, the father of, of management. I didn't actually work with him directly, but my business partner, Jeff Smart, studied under him uh, in, uh, in grad school. And he talked about how anything worth doing is worth piloting, which is fancy talk for just try stuff. <laughs> And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, that's fine too. Like actually just give it a whirl rather than like my bias before that was try to perfect the plan and then go execute the plan. And Drucker was like, just try it and learn from it. And maybe you can tweak it, make it better. Maybe, maybe not, but it's better than just planning until, until the, the end of the day. So there are a couple. Here's a third. Sorry, I'll throw one more at you. I was thinking about this before our call, and actually the senior minister at my church used to say, do what you do best and let others do the rest. And I, it's kind of catchy, but it, and it stuck with me, but he's actually right. Figure out what it is that you do better than anyone in the world and go do that thing. And then let everybody else or better build a team around you of everybody else who can help you do the stuff you don't do as well. 
And I think the most successful people recognize they're not great at everything. They recognize they're great at this thing and they go do this thing rather than trying to be a jack of all trades. And it tends to have a better outcome. Sure. And so, you know, you're talking to all these leaders and in that process, I'm sure that there's a lot of, I guess, introspective thought on how you lead and your own sort of leadership and how it goes. And so what do you think your style of leadership is? My style. Yeah. I, I've actually thought about this. I, I'm a servant leader. If you go online and look at leadership styles, the description fits me well. I, I like to serve others. I spend most of my day trying to help people. I enjoy developing people. So I really have always going all, all the way back to the beginning of my career when I was not in a leadership position. I always mentored people formally or informally. I took people under my wing. I find myself going to lunch with people all the time just to offer career advice or, or support or whatever. I, I was on the phone last night with somebody who was looking for some help. And I just, I get a kick out of that. It's my natural bias. And I've realized that it, you know, it is a leadership approach. And so my approach is hire really good people and then do everything I can to help them basically. Try to bring out the best in people. Mm-hmm. And so now to pivot here, uh, getting to your wildly successful book. <laughs> ah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Who, which I'm sure is now being confused with the World Health Organization. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just interested to know how and when did you decide to write a book and write one specifically around the topic of hiring? Yeah, so it, it was actually a bucket list item to someday write a book, but I thought I was going to be more like the, the great American novel or some such thing so, somewhere down the line. But what happened was Jeff Smart, my business partner, and I were working on a client who is in the waste management business, garbage collectors, basically. And a similar story to the Continental story in that they were really struggling we helped the board change the CEO and build out the executive team. And it grew something like 60% over the next 18 months or two years or so. It was a great turnaround story. And the, and the, um, the, the CEO and the CHRO, again, Chief Human Resource Officer, came to me one day and said, hey, this is great, all the work you've done. How do you scale it into the rest of the organization? And we had no idea. <laughs> so we, we ended up training their regional heads, but it's got into our head, maybe they suggested, hey, you should write a manual or a book or something. And Jeff and I looked at each other and said, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's do it. So we latched onto the idea pretty quickly when a client said, this, this, this thing you guys do is powerful. You should get the ideas out into the world. Yeah, that's super cool. And so when you, when, I guess when that seed was planted, did you have any expectations for the book going in? I mean, obviously it did incredibly well. What, what were your initial expectations? Yeah, so we, we, we decided if we're going to do this and go through the, the, the challenge of it, we're going to go all the way with it. So we, de we decided out of the gates we wanted to write a New York Times bestseller, which I realized is incredibly presumptuous. So I live in Atlanta. Jeff was, was in Denver, and so I flew to Denver, and we spent three days in his office and we, we took every best-selling business book we could think of and we laid them out on his, his conference table. And then we went on to dissect, we basically dissected them. We reverse engineered, why did each of these books succeed? And we came up with a list of 14 
reasons why a, a book becomes a, a business bestseller. So this only applies to the business world, I suppose. And then we basically engineered who, and I think we were able to achieve 12 out of the 14 criteria necessary to make a book a bestseller based on our, you know, our analysis of these books. Um, oh, and oh, and one other thing, I called about 12 or 15 of the authors of these books and just cold called them and said, tell me what, how'd you do it basically, what worked and what didn't work. So with all of that, we basically engineered the book and, and then we held our breath <laughs> and it worked, it worked, it was awesome. And I, I, it's one of these things I pinch myself for every now and again, because it's still a number one or a top 1%, I should say, not number one, top 1% seller for Random House in their business category, 10 years later or 11 years later, which is really cool. But the biggest thing is just uh, every now and then we'll get a phone call or an email from somebody we don't know who's read it, who's put it into practice and has found it transformative. And I just, I love that. It's, it gets back to helping people to succeed. And now we're helping people succeed we don't even know. So it's exceeded our, uh, our loftiest expectations for sure. Yeah. And have you, uh, have you published the, the list of 14 qualities? I think that'd be pretty, that'd be pretty cool. To, yeah. To have. No, no, but call me if you ever want to write a book, I, I can pull it up and dust it off for sure. Right. So, so having written a book all about hiring, I'm sure you, you've, you've got to have some good tips for young people on how to have the best impression or impact when applying for a job or doing an interview so what do you what do you look for in a new hire and what are some ways you think young people can be memorable or impactful? Yeah, uh, two great words actually. So we we look for two things and I think most companies look for two things when you boil it down to its very essence. One is is this person going to get results for us? And second, um, do they build good relationships? Which is really is this somebody that I I want to work with. Are they, are they fun to work with? Are they open-minded? Are they, you know, are they willing to take feedback? <laughs> so there's a whole lot underneath that, but it's really interesting in my line of work. I see people who are remarkably good at getting results, but they kind of stink at building relationships. They sort of sit back and go, look, I'm a smart person. My results should speak for themselves, but they're kind of a jerk. <laughs> so People are like, yeah, you're, you're successful, but I don't like you. I don't want to work with you. So that doesn't work. And I also see people who are amazing at building relationships, but they can't get anything done. And they're fun to have around, but they're, you know, in business, you're, you pay for them. So at some point you need, you need some kind of productivity. So it's this, this intersection of both the results and the relationships that, that we, you know, that we find are most successful. It's this idea of, get the right results in the right way through relationships, results through relationships, if you will. So for college or even high school um, students who don't have a lot of experience, whatever you do, whether it's in your classes, your athletics, extracurriculars, internships, summer jobs, whatever you have going on, you, you want to both produce results and work on building connections, if you will. And I mean that in the nicest way. I'm not talking like some, you know, uh, schmarmy networking thing, but like genuinely get to know the people you're working with and treat them like you would treat a friend. Uh, and, and that's when good things happen. On a, on a colder level, what really seems to be the drivers are a combination of intellect, emotional intelligence, which is more the, the social side and drive. That's your motivation and, and the rest. 
And then the, the magic, I think the magic like thing that you sprinkle on all of that that brings it to life is uh, something that a psychologist named Carol Dweck calls mindset, specifically growth mindset. I actually do recommend her book to your listeners. It's, the, the book is called Mindset. And the basic idea is that there, there are people who have a growth mindset in this world and a people with a fixed mindset. And the growth mindset, people tend to be more others oriented. They tend to be more open to learning and growing and open to feedback and coaching. And they want to try new things and they take more risks and, and so on. Whereas the fixed mindset, people tend to be more self-centered. They let their fears and insecurities dominate. They tend to be perfectionists. So interestingly, a lot of A-plus students are in this category where academically they're at the top of the house, but they're fragile. They take fewer risks. They don't like feedback. They hate feedback. They hate failure. They don't want coaching. They don't want anyone telling them they're imperfect. And the problem is that shuts them down to learning and growing and getting better. So you might get a great job out of the gates because you're brilliant, but you'll have a really hard time advancing in your career because you're afraid of your own, you know, your own shadow, so to speak. So um, uh, be, be awesome, but be awesome in a way where you are building and forging relationships in a two-way street where you're helping them and you're allowing them to help you. That's, that seems to be the recipe for long-term success in people's career paths. I don't know, that help answer the question? I got yes, on a little totally. bit. Totally. It's a lot of food for thought. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are looking for like, what's the, you know, what are the traits? What are the five skills or whatever? And the reality is our world is way too complex for that, right? The key is to figure out what you are singularly great at, like what makes you awesome. And those are the skills that you should, you should emphasize and amplify and, and all the rest. The only question is, is that, are you, are you as good as you're ever going to get right now? Or are you, are you open to getting better? And if it's the latter, which I hope it is for, for your listeners and you, then great. But that means, you know, bring people into the fold, right? Be vulnerable. Let them give you feedback. Own your mistakes. Going back to the, the Air Force general comment I made, right? So all of that stuff adds up to success. Seek out mentors, Seek out guidance from people who are ahead of you. Maybe they graduated from your school, you know, three, four years ahead of you. What, what have they found so far? Like, go talk to them. Find out. Buy them a coffee or a lunch or something when we can actually go out into the world again. And, and just learn from that. Th those are the people who seem to be most successful um, in the world. It's those who realize that they can't do it alone and embrace the relationships while also working hard to produce results for the greater good for the team. That seems to be the, in, in whatever field, whatever thing, yeah. that seems to be the secret to success in a nutshell. Yeah, totally. And what's interesting, I was actually just having this conversation with my parents and well, really my family. And we were talking about how America is very individualistic, right? and how we're all trained to think about ourselves and individual success and all these things. And my big sister said, you know, she doesn't believe in, in the term self-made. Being self-made, like that's a joke. It's not real. Almost that everyone is helped in some way. And so it sort of relates back to what you're talking about. Your sister's a wise woman. I mean, seriously, yeah. <laughs> I think if you, ask, if you were to ask what causes people to fail, you could probably infer a bunch from what I've already said. But I will tell you that there are a lot of leaders who get to the top of whatever organization and they think they did it on their own 
and there's like this almost a narcissism that kicks in and and they stop listening to people and they think they think they got there nobody got there on their own nobody impossible there's no such thing as the self-made billionaire right they happen to be born in this country in this century they were in the right school at the right time right they had family backing they, they had so much going for them and if you don't humbly recognize what you're starting with, you're already behind. And unfortunately, you, you read about these leaders in the front page of the papers when they fall. <laughs> and you can right. predict when it's gonna happen, right? The pride before the fall, they're gonna fall, and they do. So anyway, your sister's right. <laughs> Tell her she's right. <laughs> I will. <laughs> so as I mentioned in the introduction, you now have around 20 years of business experience and have written and released two books. So along that path, what sort of have been the most difficult phases or obstacles that you've had to face throughout that journey? Yeah. So three things come to mind, if, if you'll allow me to offer three. The, the first and the biggest by far, going back to my experience at at EasyGov was we got we got out over our skis. We overextended ourselves and we ended up having to lay people off. And that was gut-wrenching for me because they the team wasn't really responsible for it. The leadership team, including me, was responsible for it. And we were messing with people's jobs and lives and it wasn't their fault. And I I remember sitting in my cubicle at the time looking out the window and I thought man is this what I've been working so hard to to do as a business leader because this is awful this can never happen again and it hasn't that <laughs> you know knock on wood but I I I have a it, the good news is I learned that boy I need I, like leadership is a responsibility and I wasn't taking it seriously enough uh, so that was gut wrenching the second one was humbling which was also at EasyGov, we had a wonderful start as a company, but the internet was new. And IBM, we actually struck a strategic relationship with them along with EDS, as I mentioned earlier. And at the time, EDS said, the same, same gentleman actually who, who I mentioned before, said, hey, don't work with IBM. They just want to, to steal your technology and then they're gonna throw you, throw you out. And we didn't listen. I just thought it was, you know, one competitor talking badly about another competitor, but it turned out they were right. <laughs> and so there was, it was a humble, you know, and as a, as a result, our company kind of um, plateaued and we ended up having to sell it earlier than we had anticipated. And so there was a, a lesson around humility and really listening and paying attention there. You know, we thought we were hot stuff and that was, that was misguided. And then the third was, I, I'm currently the managing partner at GH Smart, and I became managing partner 10 years ago after I'd only been a partner for two years, which made me the newest partner on the team. And suddenly I was the most senior partner on the team, aside from Jeff Smart, our founder. And that was really hard because I, had, I was essentially the manager of people who had way more time and role and more experience both business experience and GH Smart experience. And so, yeah, that, I, that taught me a lot more about how you earn the power and the authority and the respect versus just being given it through title. Yeah, and so related to that question, were there ever moments along your path when you second-guessed your trajectory or second-guessed 
what you were doing or, you know, your decision, just big picture? Yeah, big picture. I probably stayed at EasyGov too long. I feel I was there for five years and we ended up selling the business at the end of that. But I think after about three years, going back to my comment at the beginning that the great thing about business and the markets is that you can figure out what's working and what's not working quickly. And after three, you know, after two years, it was working by three years. It wasn't, or it was kind of faltering. And by four and five, it wasn't working the way we wanted. And uh, I kind of knew it, but I didn't know what to do with myself. So it was an existential career crisis of, I know this isn't it, but I don't know what I should go do. And so I just stayed put. And I think what I should have done is been way more proactive about figuring out what I wanted to do and networking and everything long before I, I did finally get around to do, doing that. And we can talk about that more, but that was a mistake. I, I feel like I lost a couple of years. My wife reminds me of that often. <laughs> it was not an economically rewarding time. And it turns out it wasn't really a, uh, a growth time for me you know, after the first few years either. So it was kind of dead time in my career. So if you had to give me the three qualities or characteristics that you think have led to your success as a, as a businessman and, and author, what do you think they'd be and why? Yeah. So ah, the, the, uh, the infamous, you know, keys to success question. So I think, I think everybody succeeds a little differently. There is no universal one-size-fits-all, you know, key beyond the broad strokes that I, I mentioned a second ago. But for me personally, I think there are two things I do particularly well. One is I, I think I can focus and prioritize very, very well because I'm analytical. This goes back to the engineering background, right? So I'm analytical. I'm a structured thinker. I'm a strategic thinker. I, for whatever reason, can see around corners in business. Like I, I can see what's coming. I didn't see what was coming at EasyGov, as I mentioned, but generally I can see what's coming and position the company and myself for it. And that has worked out very well. And then the other thing is kind of as a counter to that is I've, I think I'm a reasonably humble person who listens to others. I make myself very approachable to others. And I think I communicate pretty well with others. So there's like the listening communication dyad. And that allows me actually to be more analytical and more strategic because I'm taking in data from everybody's perspective rather than just my own. It also happens to be a better way to align people because if they have a say in the answer, they're more likely to you know, feel ownership over the answer. So I think that I have courage of conviction that comes from my analytics, but also in a highly relatable way to, to others. So for me, that's been my formula for success, if you will. It may not be the same for everyone though, because you've got different strengths, right? So the yeah. question is, how do you play to your strengths to bring something to the table that, that complements the broader team dynamic? Yeah, and last two questions here. Interviews coming to a close. <laughs> Uh, so, Randy, as you know, this podcast is all about sharing stories that can inspire and really help to guide the younger generation to find their passion or calling and then pursue and go after it. And so this is a two-part question. First part is, what advice would you give to high schoolers, college students, anyone who hasn't found that passion and is still searching for it? Yeah. So I've got two thoughts on this. One is a short one. Be patient. 
I think your generation has a, a very big expectation of knowing the answer by the time you graduate. I would suggest you probably won't know the answer until you're in your 30s, maybe later. And if you're lucky enough to stumble into a job where you find it sooner, good for you. You're the lucky one, but most people don't. So forgive yourself and take it easy on yourself when you get into your first few jobs and maybe they're not perfect and you're not quite sure what your passion is. That's actually totally normal. So normalize that for yourself. So that's my first advice. Just be patient. Give yourself some grace. It's okay. And it's normal. And then the second one is, and this is, this is probably the advice if there's anything I would suggest, you know, or anything I wish I had been told when I was in, in your seat. I, I kind of think of, of three P's, passion, performance, and pragmatic. And passion's the hardest of the three, but I actually think you want to get your head around all three of them. Passion is obviously what makes you come alive. Performance is what you're uniquely good at. Like what are your just raw skills and pragmatic is what are, what are your needs? And that's like, where do you want to live? How much money do you need to make? What kind of team or boss do you want to have? Those sorts of things, what kind of company might you want to work for? The pragmatic stuff's easy enough to figure out, right? And it's low stakes. The performance stuff is not that hard to figure out. Just go back and look at all your report cards and all of the, the stuff you've done with sports and whatever you've done, you can probably draw up a list of, of what are the five skills, eight skills that you are, you're just really good at. That's the stuff that you can emphasize in your job interviews and, and in the work that you do. And then, and then we're back to passion as the hard one. And what I found was if you, if you take, the, if you think about, let's say five or 10 times in your life, where you've been in the zone, where you've been most alive, where you felt most just like everything just sort of came easy, where you felt motivated, where you jumped out of bed, excited to do the work, whatever it was, and then dissect those, you might actually find some themes and they're going to be broad themes, right? It's not going to be like, go save the whales in that level of specificity, right? It's going to be a broad theme and, and then run it by people who know you your parents, uh, counselors you've had, teachers that you respect, your, your, your close friends, and they will, and let them react to it. And what you'll find is you'll have this set of ideas that's kind of loose, but when you actually then go out and meet somebody, maybe a networking coffee or something like we talked about earlier, throw that stuff on the table and say, this is the kind of stuff I like. This is when I feel most alive. This is when I'm in the zone. What comes to mind for you when you hear this? What kinds of jobs come to mind and who comes to mind? Like, does this remind you of anybody that I should go meet? And if so, can you introduce me? And what you'll find is the more of those conversations you have, the more you go from kind of this fuzzy, loosey-goosey set of ideas based on dissecting things that you've enjoyed doing in the past to something that gets clearer and clearer uh, and points you closer and closer toward what that passion is. It also happens if you then combine that conversation of here's what I'm all about passion wise with this is what I'm great at performance wise, the skills, and here's what I want and need pragmatic in terms of bosses and teams and companies. If you think about that as three rings and a Venn diagram, the intersection of that is the bullseye job. And if you can describe that in more and more detail to people as you meet them, you're more and more likely to find jobs that suit you and that will, you know, light you up from a passion perspective. Yeah. And then second part of the question is, 
what advice would you give to those who have found their passion and sort of know what they want to do, but are hesitant to take that plunge and don't really know exactly, exactly where to start? Yeah. Take the plunge. Life is short. Take some risk. You know, we're learning with this pandemic that whatever your plans are can get totally thrown out the window overnight. And it's a shame that it takes a pandemic or a tragedy or something in life to realize that life's just too short to, to play it safe. So my best advice for, for, for taking the plunge, make a list of 10 people that you know who you think might be helpful in this journey in terms of giving you advice. And this could be, you could obviously start with your folks, teachers, maybe somebody you did an internship with, uh, maybe it's a friend of the family, whatever. Come up with a list of 10 people you respect who you think could give you a good advice. Send them an email, and yes, an email, not a text, not a Facebook, not an Instagram. Like send them an email, old school, with the subject line advice. And then basically in the, in the body of the email say, you know, who, name, you know, my, my, uh, you know, my dad suggested I reach out to you. I'd love to see if I could buy you a coffee and get your advice. I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, you know, where I want to play in this world and how to, how to exercise my passions. Would you be willing to do it? Almost everyone will say yes. And once they say yes, you know, get them on the phone, buy them the coffee, I guess, virtually <laughs> send them as a gift card or something. But then, um, in the conversation, basically describe what you think your passions are, as we talked about before, and ask the same two questions I asked a minute ago. What comes to mind for you and who comes to mind to you? And can you make, you know, who would you be willing to introduce me to next? So you never close one of those conversations with ask, without asking, who's the next person I should talk to? And you may have to talk to 100 people, but I guarantee you, you will land in a great place as a result. And you'll meet some really cool people along the way. Yeah, well, Randy, those are all the questions I've got um, for today. Thank you so much. I mean, I can't tell you how valuable this interview is uh, for me, hopefully for the people listening. And um, and I know I'm going to use this information to help me and, and hopefully others will use it to help themselves in the years to come. So thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me onto your show and thank you for doing the show in general. I think it's an awesome idea and I wish you the best of luck uh, with this endeavor. I know a lot of people will benefit from it. So good, good for you. And uh, thanks again for having me on. For sure. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Pleasure. Have a good one. Alex. Bye-bye. Once again, everyone, that was Randy Street, managing partner at GH Smart and world-renowned author. You can find more information on Randy's book at the link in the, in the description. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and make sure to join us next week for our next episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at skipper.podcast for any updates on the show and more information on our guests. Thanks so much for listening.